Hey, man, it's me, Kevin Smith. Are you listening to the right podcast? Because you're supposed to be listening to Three Guys in a Flick. Are you listening to that right now? Then you're in the right place. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Say hello to my little friend. 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 Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Scarface. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from Tony Montana's bubble-filled bathtub, my name is Don. And to my right, we have the comic book guy, John. Would you mind scrubbing my back? Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, hold on to this for me for a second. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Hello, everybody. And joining us for a third week in a row, this is Nolan. Can't get rid of me. You're like a bad rash. Yeah. Or luggage. Well, you kind of do have them chained up down here. Dude, the listeners aren't supposed to know that. How's the mask fit? Fit pretty good this week? It's snug. All right, good. Good, good, good. You need to get them a bigger box, though. Tonight we are talking about Scarface. Scarface comes to us from the Bronco Helmet and was submitted to us by our listener, Edwin. Had you guys seen Scarface? This was actually my first time. I've heard tons about it. I, I of course, know all the classic lines. I had never seen it. Interesting. What about you, Nolan? Have Had you ever seen Scarface? No, I, ha- I haven't, and I'm kind of in the same boat as John. Interesting. Professor? Several times. Yeah, me too. You know what the one thing I forgot about going into this viewing? Is how it's, long it fucking is? How fucking long this movie is. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's a long movie. Uh, and it makes me laugh because after f- he kills Frank and he goes to get Elvira and he's standing there looking at the blimp, that's where the VHS breaks. So, oh, really? Yeah, that's where you were supposed to put in the second VHS cassette. Hmm. VHS what? were uh, cassettes used back in the 80s and 90s, Nolan? Uh, to yeah, watch I, movies? I know what a VHS <laughs> Okay, is. just making sure about it. Wait, have, only have, in a museum, though, so I've never had the pleasure of using one. Have, gotcha. you, have you ever been in a blockbuster? Of course I've been in a blockbuster. Okay. Well, there you go. That made my childhood like five to ten years old. Released on December 9th, 1983, Scarface was directed by Brian De Palma. Screenplay by Oliver Stone. Based on the book Scarface by Armitage Trail and the 1932 movie Scarface by Howard Hawks. And it stars El Pacino, Stephen Bauer, Michelle Pfeiffer, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, Robert Loggia, and a bunch of other cockroaches. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $37 million and brought in $66 million. So this would be, I think, our second Brian De Palma movie? Correct. And what was Yes, it is. And what was the other? Uh, the Untouchables. Yeah. And this is also our second Al Pacino movie. Yes. It is. What was the other movie? Heat. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh. We haven't done a uh, another Oliver Stone movie yet, have we? No, this is our first Oliver Stone movie, I believe. Because mm-hmm. he wrote this movie. Right. Speaking of writers, this was directed by Brian De Palma. And outside of... The Untouchables, are you guys familiar with any other of his works? Nolan, have you seen The Untouchables? I'm trying to remember. Does that have 
Sean Connery in it? It does. Okay, then I saw it a long time ago. Like I was probably 13 or 14 years old. Mm. Oh, sure. But you've listened to our podcast about it, right? I don't think so. <sighs> hey, man, at least he's honest, <laughs> right? At least he's honest. Uh, what about you, Professor? Do any other Brian De Palma titles jump out at you? Uh, well, you got Carrie. And let's see. The Untouchables also comes to mind. How about the first Mission Impossible? Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Carlito's Way, Raising Kane. I mean, he made some movies in the 90s, that's for sure. Yeah, the only two I think I've seen is Carrie and The Untouchables. You've never seen the first Mission Impossible? Gosh, you know, I don't know if I've ever watched it all the way through. I may have seen it. Oh. What comes to mind for me definitely is Carrie, mm-hmm. you know, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, he uh, is in the same circles, if you will, uh, in the 70s with Spielberg, Coppola, Lucas, yep. and Scorsese. Yep. So, I mean, he was part of the boys. Yep. He even had uh, Spielberg on set with him on occasion. Spielberg was actually allowed to direct one of the scenes. Yeah, well, it was a shot, but, yeah, yeah, yeah toward the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that, too. Um, written by Oliver Stone. Uh, do you know what inspired Oliver Stone to write this movie? Cocaine. His own cocaine addiction. He was trying to get over his own addiction. So he wrote a movie about cocaine. Yeah. I mean, more or less, uh, Al Pacino is actually the one that gets this off the ground. Is he? The, yeah. This is his passion project. He gets it up and running and they get Sidney Lament. Do you know who Sidney Lament is? Yeah. He's a director. Yeah. They get him to direct it. And Oliver Stone comes on board and says, I want to write it. But then Sidney Lament says, oh, I don't want to direct this. Because he didn't like the direction it was going in. Right. And, it, and they were and Pacino wanted to do like a remake. Yeah. And you know uh, what Brian De Palma was actually busy directing at the time that he left. Well, he hadn't taken it on yet. He was going to do Flashdance. Yeah, he was going to do Flashdance. Yeah. What a feeling. See what I did there? Yes, I do. The professor gets it. Have you ever seen Flashdance? Oh, I've never even heard of it. what am i doing on a movie podcast (laughs) you know what young man that is a great question it's always good to have a fresh view of someone who's never seen the movies before and isn't into movies as much as we are to give their their real take about it is it though they they represent the everyday not movie person is it though i capture the youth demographic is that what it is i've got my hand on the pulse yeah okay okay well well from where i'm sitting you got your hand on something and, you know, comic book guys all smiles. But, um, yeah, I guess uh, Pacino goes back and forth on whether to do this or not. And do you know who wanted to do this? Well, I heard De Niro was considered, but he backed out. No, he wanted to do it, but he was only going to do it if Pacino didn't. So I guess Pacino goes to him and says, should I do it? And De Niro goes, yeah, you should do it. Because if you don't do it, I'm going to do it with Marty Scorsese. So can you imagine... a Scarface, uh, Scorsese style. Could be interesting. Interesting, right? I, I feel like it'd be Goodfellas in Cuba, though. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, let's talk about this cast a little bit. Of course, we have the great El Pacino, who I think was probably born to play this role. Well, Oliver Stone wrote it specifically for El Pacino. Right, because Pacino wanted to get this up and off the ground. And actually, I can't, I don't think it was Lament, but someone else suggested not making it an Italian gangster, but a Cuban refugee. It might have been Lament. Well, we've kind of touched on this, but this is a uh, remake. The original was about Al Capone uh, in and, the book. And bootlegging. And bootlegging. And so basically they took it and gave it the Cuban flavor and made it about 
the whole Cuban, Cuba, you know, bringing the Cubans over and going into the drug cocaine business. Right, but that wasn't the initial idea for the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sidney Lament, I think it was Sidney Lament, mm-hmm. uh, uh, brought in the refugee aspect. And, and that was turned it ultimately around. why he ended up leaving, I think. Yes, yes. <clears throat> and so uh, Al Pacino gets the role and goes on to just be, make this role iconic. You know, uh, when you think of Al Pacino, to me, I think two things pop into my head, Scarface and The Godfather. You know, even though he does have heat and all those other great roles, those two, you know, kind of made him. As someone, and we've mentioned this before, I have not seen the Godfather movies. I'm actually saving them for when we review them. Uh, For me, what pops in the head is Scent of a Woman. Oh, yeah, sure. There's that, too, because he wins the Oscar for that. He does. Mm -hmm. Do you know who Al Pacino is? I've heard Again, I've heard the name a ton of times before seeing this movie, but I would have never been able to pick him out if you'd given me a lineup of actors. Interesting. I feel like I feel like that happens with a lot, or at least me personally. Like I, I know so many names, but can't put the if, faces to them. And then this is Michelle Pfeiffer's kind of big break. Yeah, she had only done small, small things. Uh, the biggest thing she had done to date was Grease Two, I believe, coming into this, mm-hmm. and then she goes on to become Michelle Pfeiffer. They originally didn't. Uh, Al Pacino didn't really want her for this movie. He wanted somebody else. Glenn Close. Yeah, and they didn't think she was sexy enough for this movie. Yeah. Well, they went through a lot of casting calls, and eventually, um, even though Michelle Pfeiffer wasn't a name, uh, her name was submitted to uh, who was the producer Bergman. Yeah. And he uh, calls her and says, "We will have a screening for you, but you have to fly yourself out to L.A." Right. And so for somebody that is, you know, not a known person, you know, those hard-earned dollars that you're going to invest into a plane ticket to go do a reading on the other side of the country for maybe something. And so they were impressed by that. And they thought that, um, they thought that uh, she played very well opposite uh, Al Pacino. You know, there are a lot of Al Pacino movies that I don't feel like he is or could be the romantic lead. Uh, But in this one, I buy Pfeiffer and uh, Pacino together. So their chemistry seems to work. Well, I think think the characters have a lot of good chemistry with each other. They play well off of each other. Agreed. I really like Stephen Bauer, Manny, his sidekick. Doesn't go on to do a lot. I mean, he goes on to... To do other things, obviously. Yes, but, but not big. He's no Al Pacino, you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but I really liked how he played Manny, and he was the only uh, actual Cuban on set. I actually thought he did a great job, but do you know who they considered for Manny? John Travolta. That would have been a weird casting, I think, at the time. I don't know. Back in 1983, I think, Nolan, do you know who John Travolta yes, is? I know who John is. Okay, just I've making sure. Okay, good, good, good. Uh <laughs> I think back in 1983, it makes sense. Well, he was mostly known for Welcome Back Cotter back then. And Saturday Night Fever. And Grease by then. Because Grease was, what, 82, I think? Yeah, something like that. I think so. I don't know if he would have been taken as seriously as kind of a sidekick character. Oh, I think he would have. You think so? Yeah, because he he isn't who we know who he is today, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. He's still up and coming. And I I, I also believe that the... uh, the presence of Al Pacino on the screen that uh, the Palma, he was concerned that when you have Al Pacino on the screen, everybody's going to just be looking at him. So if you have a big presence opposite 
you want somebody that's going to be pay that the audience will pay attention to as well. Right. Robert Loja. It's nice to see him in something like this. I mean, I didn't even know he was in this movie and I've always liked him. I always thought he's just got one of those voices, one of those presents. What's your favorite Robert Loja role? (sighs) Mostly from TV. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, he's done a lot of detective stuff on TV. Oh. <laughs> and cop stuff. Uh, that's Frank Lopez, if uh, oh, you're wondering. Okay, yeah. Okay. yeah. You could see the puzzled expression on my face. I did. Yeah. I did. Uh, Robert Loggia. Uh, I know him, or when I think of Robert Loggia, I think of Over the Top with Sylvester Stallone. Oh, really? Yeah. Wasn't he also an airplane? No. Uh, and then we have Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Do you guys recognize her at all? It's Maid Marion. Prince of Thieves, Robin Hood. Oh. Yeah, I, I don't really have her associated with anything. But that was some hair on her. Oh, yeah, she had great hair. She has great hair. She's also in the January Man with Kevin Klein. Did you ever see that? No. Back in the 80s? Listeners, January Man, 1987. Nolan's like, what the fuck is 1987? <laughs> I just feel like for uh, the, these segments of the podcast, I'm kind of checked out. Like, I just, there's... You're supposed to be learning, I know, my good man. That's that's what this you're point being is. Educated, yeah. Yes, you should be going home, going. You know what? I think I want to watch the January Man, Grease Two, blah 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 blah. Well, when you so. said Michelle Pfeiffer earlier, I was I thought you were going to ask me if I knew her from anything, so I googled her. I know her from animated Sinbad in two thousand three and The Prince of Egypt. So there. What about Batman? Tim Burton's Batman Returns. She was fucking awesome in that. Do you know who Batman is? Yes, I know who Batman is. Okay, he's Batman the protector of Gotham. I'm just making yes, sir, sure. No, I, uh, do you know, are you aware that he has a villain slash booty call in Catwoman? Sure. You, you don't I, know who I, Catwoman I've is? I've heard of Catwoman, yeah. But, oh, for fuck's sake, Wait, guy. hold on. Which, which Batman movie is this? Batman Returns. Batman, oh, not Begins. Returns. Re- begins has Christian Bale. With Danny DeVito. Oh, have you seen? Oh, I'm sure you've seen that one. Yeah, I've seen that whole trilogy. It's amazing. Oh. <laughs> Uh, what did you guys think of the soundtrack? Did you guys notice that right off the bat? No, I did not notice it right off the bat. Really? No. Oh, no, my you gosh. know what's funny is I kept hearing things about the soundtrack, but I was so into uh, Al Pacino, I don't even think I noticed the soundtrack. Oh, my God. That's the first thing I noticed, that heavy synth. What about you? Did you notice the soundtrack at all? I felt like it was, when I heard it, it was, the, my first thought was, this is like parody or like a slight twist on music i'm supposed to have heard before like it didn't see it sound like super familiar but it's like this could have been really famous like i should have heard this before oh sure and it's heavy synth and it's just this theme that goes on throughout the movie and it always makes me laugh so what do you guys think of all the cocaine in the movie uh who doesn't like cocaine did you uh baby powder well, that's what there was supposed to be, baby powder. Uh, a lot of people don't know for sure. Some people say there probably was actual cocaine on set. Uh, Al Pacino has said that he snorted so much of whatever it was, his nose was never the same afterwards. Yeah, it's still fucked up today. Yeah. Yeah, crazy, huh? Brian De Palma neither confirmed nor denied real cocaine use. But I'll just say this. 1983. I don't know why you would actually, I guess he's a character actor, right, into the role. Because you could probably get away with some of that. You know, you see his head go down to the table, but you don't see his nose at the product. So does he really have to snort it? Exactly. Yeah. Well, he got into his role because, like, he even had all the people, uh, the cast and crew only speak Spanish to him. Only the director of photography. Oh, the director of photographer? Yeah. Okay. It was the only one who he has to speak Spanish to him. But, yeah, he's a method actor. This movie, 
maybe it's because I, I, I watched some Miami Vice when I was, you know, when it was on. I wasn't really big into it, but it gave me a huge Miami Vice vibe. Uh, my, this is where Miami Vice got its vibe. Is it? Oh, yeah. Because okay. Miami Vice starts the following year, 1984. Okay. Yeah, okay. so Scarface inspires so many things, but Miami Vice for sure, the Grand Theft Auto series, Vice City. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever played Grand Theft Auto? Yeah. Okay, just making sure. All inspired by Scarface. I was going to say, wouldn't it be fun to see Crockett and Tubbs go up against Tony? Could come up on the wheel. Oh, fuck. Thank you, dude. You just gave, You just saved me. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to use. Dibs. I get Miami Vice. I I can't name a particular example, but how many times has "Say Hello to My Little Friend" shown up in other movies and TV series? And oh, it is a iconic line going down in history as one of the top quoted lines ever. And did you know that line was not ad libbed at all? I, it was written that way. I know. Yep. I was originally told in some of my notes. That uh, it was ad lib, but no, uh, Oliver Stone has come out and said, no, it was written that way, but the deliverance was all Al Pacino. Here at Three Guys, there's a particular word that we seem to like, we seem to use all the time, and that would be fuck. Do you know how many times the F word was used in this movie? 244. Professor, you got a guess? 207. 302. It was 207. I think someone actually read the notes. For its time, it was the most uses of fuck in any movie in history. Until 1993, when Martin Scorsese releases the crime drama Wolf of Wall Street. Goodfellas. And then sometime later, Marty Scorsese does it again in The Wolf of Wall Street. When I was watching it, there's a bit when uh, Tony's in the bathtub and he's talking to Manny and Elvira and Elvira turns to him and she says, do you have to say fuck all the time? And I had to laugh because, well, <laughs> I've heard that before. I think you should take that clip and every time we swear, you should just play that every so often. <laughs> did, it, did the word fuck seem excessive to you, Nolan? Not really, but I feel like that's just a word that I use all the time as well. So it's it's a filler word. I. You use it to punctuate the words that are around it, you know, like to make those the word the words that aren't fuck stand out. I think, you know, I I have I agree with you, good sir. I, I get passionate about my movies, so I I say fuck a lot. Yeah. Did you know that besides being you know this whole drug lord type movie, there's a lot of good life lessons in this movie. I put down a list that I found of life lessons that come from this movie. One. Every day above ground is a good day. All you have in this world is your balls and your word. Don't break them for nobody. Never get high on your own supply. Always remember, this is a business. Always tell the truth, even when you lie. Every dog has his day. You're always going to be the bad guy. Never underestimate the other guy's greed. Never forget the world is yours. And never trust nobody. I think there's some good life lessons in there. So I guess it's about that time. Why, yes, boys, it is that time. Welcome to another edition of Master Movie Trivia. I am your reigning champ. You may call me the champ. I have compiled five questions and five questions only to test your knowledge of the movie we are reviewing. Each question could be worth multiple points, so if you know the answer, say it. And please wait until I finish each question question now i'm pretty sure you guys all got disqualified last week 
So uh, yeah, let's just follow the rules, okay? All right, here we go. Don't don't break my balls. This isn't good, fellas. Question number one: How much money did Tony try and give his mama? A thousand dollars. Well done, Professor. A thousand dollars. Was it on the tip of your tongue, there, guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to be fast. I know. Professor's fucking They're fast. Good. They're yeah. good. Yeah. Question number two: What animal can be seen chained to a tree during the wedding scene? Tiger. tiger. Oh, like the tie. Tony has a globe in his house with what motto on it? The world, the world is, is yours. yours. Point to the professor again. The world is yours. Tony Montana has two things in this world and breaks them for no one. What are they? His, his balls, balls and his word. His word. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a tie somewhere in there. And question number five. What is the Spanish slang word for cocaine? Yeah, yo. Look at Professor. I'm going to go ahead and say, Professor, you just dominated this round. So... Congratulations. He knows his drug culture. Yes, he does. He, hey, remember when we said I wanted some cocaine and I told we had to go get the professor to go find it? Do you remember that at all? I don't remember any of that day. Oh, for fuck's sakes. That was a good day. (laughs) Yeah, it was a good day. Congratulations, professor. You are one step closer to movie immortality. Yay. In 1980, Cuban refugee and ex-convict Tony Montana arrives in Miami as part of the Muriel Boatlift, where he is sent to a refugee camp with his best friend, Manny, and their companions, Angel and Chichi. The four are released and given green cards in exchange for murdering a former Cuban general at the request of a Miami drug lord, Frank Lopez. They find work as dishwashers at a restaurant but are soon dissatisfied. Tony says that he is meant for bigger things. Frank's right-hand man, Omar Suarez, sends the four to purchase cocaine from Colombian dealers. Tony and Angel are taken at gunpoint. Tony is made to watch as Angel is dismembered with a chainsaw before Manny and Chichi rescue him. The three kill the dealers and personally deliver the recovered drugs and money to Frank, suspecting that Omar set them up. So this film opens up and we're immediately given text and it kind of tells us the state of the world and this whole uh, Cuba business with Fidel Castro. I had, I, maybe it's just my lack of history education. I had never heard of this. So I actually had to go look up this Muriel boat lift. Uh, I was wondering if that was just made for the movie or if that was actually a real thing that happened. And it was a real thing. Yeah. And then we're introduced to Tony Montana. He's being interrogated. What'd you guys think of this opening bit with the introduction to Scarface? Well, you know, you've got this wonderful camera work that is slowly taking us around Tony and we have these tight shots of his face and the camera slowly works its way around him. And there's no denying that, you know, you are, you are being in a way kind of introduced to the character of Tony that by the time this scene is over with, we kind of sort of know who this guy is. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I thought they did a good job of kind of giving an intro to who he is, how he's kind of you know, laid back, but he's watching his words. You can tell he's being very careful about what he says. So you kind of get an impression a little bit of who he is and how he's not being so truthful. Right. Mm-hmm. You concur? 
I concur. I, it felt like like uh, the professor was saying with like how close up the camera is, it feels a little claustrophobic. Like, I mean, you're, if you're being interrogated, you probably get that feeling. So it ropes in the audience that way where like you're part of the interrogation or like you're like you're very much so witnessing it. Yeah. Uh, De Palma gets right in your face with it and the authorities aren't buying it. So they send him off to the refugee camp. Freedom Town. I did like the little bus thing where... Uh, I told him exactly what you wanted me to say. I told him I was in sanitation. Sanatorium. Sanitarium. Sanitarium. So funny. A month has passed. You, um, Tony is having um, an opportunity presented to him that there is, uh, Manny has discovered that there is a general that's coming in from Cuba and they are going to kill him in exchange for the four of them getting green cards and getting out in a month. Right. And so, the, uh, so De Palma is telling us a lot in just this short amount of time for this particular instance. And, uh, this general dude gets to the refugee camp. And of course, uh, there's a riot and Tony and team use this as a diversion and they end up murdering the guy and they get their green cards and they get released. We also get our first understanding of Tony of he is willing to do anything and mur- even murder he doesn't even hesitate. Oh, this is not the first time he has killed somebody. I yeah. can guarantee you that. So right away we know now who we are dealing with. I agree. And I pondered were they responsible for creating the riot? I was thinking the same thing, professor. I was wondering if they had planned it cuz it almost seemed like everybody in the barracks where they killed this guy were okay with it and kind of in on it. Yeah, it did. It did feel like that. And, you know, I go back to every prison movie that I've ever seen, you know, you start a riot as a diversion. So it, it would, I wouldn't put it past them mm-hmm. to starting the riot. For me, I don't know if this is a quirk of my personality, but in movie, in some movies, I find myself not paying attention to the central, like focal point of a, a scene. And I would encourage uh, listeners and maybe you guys to go back and look at the riot scene. Take a look at some of the people in the background. Some of the stuff they're doing is utter nonsense. Like I understand that they're supposed to be a part of a riot, but there are some people doing things very similar to the peasants in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where they're just like like banging sticks on like beds and just there's just such random chaos in the background. And I feel like some of these extras uh, didn't have their their. Uh, whole hearts in it when they were filming this scene. Maybe it's just who I am, but this whole scene of the riot, all I kept thinking was, uh, you guys have to sleep there tonight. I mean, you've just torn up your beds, you've torn up your pillows, and you still got to live there. Yeah, well, I mean, you play dumb games, you win dumb prizes. Yeah. So they get out, and they... They're in a food truck. Washing dishes. And Tony's kind of all pissed off, right? This isn't what he signed up for. He wants to go out and do bigger and better things. And Manny keeps telling him, patience, patience. Well, it doesn't help that they're parked across the street from a fancy club where they're watching fancy people going in and out. And that's what Tony wants. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the American dream. We meet Omar. He pulls up and he offers them a job for $500. And What am I, fucking baggage handler? Yeah. <laughs> no fucking way. Thousand. Ballsy. Tony has such a presence and he's so abrasive and he just, uh, he just calls it like he sees it. He knows what Omar was offering them was shit. But Manny was more than willing to say, okay, yes, please. And Tony's like, no, fuck that. We're not baggage handlers. So so they were offered a job and he will pay them $5,000 to do the Coke deal. 
Right, with the Colombians. Do you think it was a setup? Yes, I do believe it was a setup. Does because it- because the way the guy says to Omar, he says, what about the Colombians? And then Omar gets this bright idea, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to send this fucker because he thinks he's a badass. Knocks him down a peg. Yeah, yeah. I also thought, I, I thought it was kind of a test. I think when he gives him the offer, he takes it, and doesn't he mention something about hating the Colombians or something? Does that ever get addressed later in the film? Uh, Tony does. He mentions that like he just doesn't like them, doesn't trust them. I was just curious if that tied into any of the other plot points later. I didn't notice anything. No, not really. You can see that he doesn't like them during this drug deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, he just says that he hates the Colombians. Yeah. But you could also see here, he's actually got a brain on him. Uh, he's actually pretty smart the way he has the two wait down there and he tells them if i'm not back in a certain amount of time something's gone wrong he has the door left open he kind of eyeballs everybody that's in the room especially the lady on the bed he knows something's up and he knows not to say where the money is i mean this isn't his first rodeo uh speaking of this hotel scene what did you guys think of this whole bit well, I, I dug the uh, the establishing shot. You know, we start up high and the camera comes down as the car comes rolling up and then it whips around and we are right there at the car watching them get out of the car. And then as they get out of the car, the camera follows them back yep. up the stairs. Yep. So a lot of crane work uh, yeah. on De Palma's picture. Yeah, there's a lot of that in this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of beautiful cinematography. Yeah. I remember growing up and my brother's watching this movie out on VHS, probably in 1984, 85. And all I remember is them talking about this chainsaw scene. And so growing up, not seeing Scarface, I had this image in my head of what happened because I didn't see it. All I get to, uh, all I did was hear about it. Right. And then we get to the scene and the chainsaw bit happens I like the idea how De Palma shows you, but he doesn't. Exactly. And I remember thinking, wow, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And what I thought it was was probably a thousand times worse. And, you know, and and we would probably see it today. But but back then. That's the genius of the shot. Yeah, I agree. Brilliance. The original version was way more graphic. It was actually much longer. They had to cut it down for the censors. They had a lot of problems with ratings on this movie this movie was uh, given an x rating three times before they finally talked them down to an r right and then the last time there was such a subtle difference between x and r that De Palma just released all the footage from the x anyway yeah so i like how when tony gets into the room and him and the colombian guy are going back and forth and he's like do you have the money no it's not here do you have the drugs no it's not here okay so do you have the money yeah but it's not here what about the drugs out here? And then Tony says, do you want me to go back out and come back in and we can start over? <laughs> I thought when you guys were talking about the chainsaw scene, I thought it was kind of interesting the way they had Tony Montana facing the guy as. Oh, yeah, it was fucking off. brutal. And again, this is something that would just scar a normal person, but not not Tony Montana. No, no, it was fucking brutal. And, you know. The brilliance of the shot is as they're setting up Angel to cut him in half, the camera pulls out and we can hear the ambient noise and we can hear what's going on outside. And then as we get closer to the car, we can hear the car radio telling us that we can't hear what's going on up there. And De Palma does that very deliberately to kind of fuck with us because by the time we go back up to the room, the chainsaws go in and there's chaos and it was, it's a very well-crafted scene. Manny gets kind of a 
alert that something's going on. Was it blood on the window up there? Because I thought I saw blood hit the window. It was 15 minutes. It was yeah, 15 it was minutes. He doesn't get an alert. Minutes. He just knows it's 15 minutes okay. sometimes. I thought up. he had seen something up in the window. No. So Manny and Chi-Chi go up there, and shit's going down. I'm guessing they hear the chainsaw, so they just open fire. And fucking chaos. What did you guys think of the bit where Tony runs downstairs and then just shoots that guy in the middle of the street? Oh, my God. What was that? So brazen of Tony. Yeah. In the middle of the street, daylight, a hundred people around. He just shoots him right in, in the fucking head. In a fancy car. Yeah. Well, well, it wasn't that fancy. Well, I'm just thinking it's a car that people could easily describe. Yeah. And the license plate, right? Yeah. And isn't that Manny's car? So I he's kind of so. fucking his body, right? <laughs> Anyways. Would you yeah. would you think of it? No, I thought it was cr- I thought it was crazy too. It was just so, I was I was shocked. I was like they would have, they would have so much on him. Like why wouldn't they be able to track him down? You He's know? got big cojones. Yeah, and so uh, the drug deal goes bad, but they get the yayo and the money. So now Tony has leverage. So he calls Omar and he says, "I got the shit, but fuck you, dude. I want to give it to Frank myself, the big guy." And so we meet Frank Lopez. Robert Loja. During their meeting, Tony becomes attracted to Frank's trophy wife, Elvira. Tony and Manny begin working for Frank. Later, Tony visits his mother and younger sister, Gina, of whom he is overprotective. He gifts his mother $1,000 and claims they'll live easier lives saying he earns money through political means. Angered by his life of crime, Tony's mother denies he's her son, kicking him out. Gina keeps the money. Manny is attracted to Tony's sister, Gina, but Tony tells him, stay away. Frank sends Tony and Omar to Bolivia to meet with cocaine kingpin Alejandro Sosa. During the meeting, Omar is unhappy when Tony negotiates a large deal without Frank's approval. Sosa later has his men hang Omar from a helicopter, telling Tony that Omar was a police informant and that Frank has poor judgment for having trusted him. Tony vouches for Frank's organization and proclaims his loyalty. Sosa takes a liking to Tony and agrees to deal, but warns Tony never to double-cross him. And I think his exact words were, Don't fuck me, Tony. And so, uh, Tony and company have the cocaine and the money and they go to frank and this is where we meet frank what do you guys think of this whole bit i was a little bit confused that tony was getting so much attention from frank like giving him all the praise when i understand that he put his life on the line but uh i feel like it was manny who came in and kind of saved the day and took a bullet like he he put in a good haul of the work i feel like oh you're not wrong manny goes very underappreciated if yeah. you will, throughout this entire film. That's what I thought. And the culmination is just fucking kicking the audience in the balls at the end, but we'll get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I I thought it was, you know, the typical trope. Uh, the new hothead comes in, and the older kingpin, godfather-esque guy takes a liking to him. And so I kind of saw all of this unfolding as well. Kind of what you were saying, Nolan, the way that uh, Frank takes an immediate liking, like really likes Tony, kind of made me feel uneasy. Like, what is Frank up to? Like, what is he? Is he just bringing him in and building him up to kind of use him for something, kind of like Omar did? I've seen enough gangster flicks to, for me to think that when 
Frank, when Frank takes him in so quickly, it's because he got the money and the Coke. Mm -hmm. So it's double his money. And what Tony says to him is it's a gift to you. This is my gift to you. So I think that automatically gets Lopez really hard for Tony. And then what Omar says at the end of the night, you know, that he's a fucking peasant. Yeah, but he will work. He'll, he's loyal and he'll work his ass off. Right. Yeah. And he does. When they go to the club for dinner, um, did you catch Frank's two rules that he kind of he tells Tony? Yeah, they were part of your life lessons. Uh, well, don't get high on your own supply and don't underestimate the other guy's greed. I felt like this was, you know, the example for this movie of foreshadowing because Tony ends up breaking both of those rules, which kind of leads to his downfall. I don't know if it's foreshadowing or just common sense. This lifestyle cannot end happily. Mm -hmm. Period. So, yeah, they're at the club. and But first, uh, Tony sees Elvira and he decides that we get the schmaltzy music yeah. to tell us, oh, he's very interested. Right. I kept thinking of, was it love at first sight or was, you know, Tony just kind of thinking in his head, I want everything that Frank has. I want to be Frank. And if I'm going to be Frank, I want her too. I think it was a little bit of both. I think that Michelle Pfeiffer is attractive and I think that uh, Tony found her attractive and the fact that she was dating Frank is just like a cherry on top that, like I could, a, that I can steal her from him. I felt it was kind of like a trophy. And let's face it, we have a very greedy person in Tony. You know, he, he only wants things for himself. And that's a very nice way of saying it, Professor. <laughs> a very greedy person. Um, what do you think of the introduction of Elvira? Uh, I kind of got distracted by the elevator. In the house, I was like, geez, just take the stairs. That elevator is so short. I mean, I'm sure it's a bigger building, but just going from that top floor to the bottom floor, I was like, you don't need that. <laughs> Welcome to the excess of the 80s. Am I right or am I right? You're right. Mm -hmm. I guess yeah. it does make the upstairs wheelchair accessible, though. So, <laughs> And did every woman wear a dress that basically went all the way down the front? Yeah, I guess. Both Gina and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's yes. character. What did you think of Elvira at the club? How standoffish she was. Clearly had no interest in anybody at the table. I remember watching it and remembering that at some point they do dance, but I couldn't remember why they started dancing. But I was actually surprised that it was Elvira who wanted up, who got up and wanted to go dance. And, you know, Frank's like, oh, go dance with her, go dance with her. And then their whole conversation you know what I mean? Did this give you any like vibes from Pulp Fiction? I felt like maybe Uma Thurman was channeling Michelle Pfeiffer's attitude in in uh, Pulp Fiction. Uh, like she, you know, obviously she had this one guy and she was just going to drag him out on the dance floor whether he wanted to or not. No, I well, did, so, no, I, I didn't get those vibes. Okay. I was going to say Tony was very like, or not very, I think internally was very enthusiastic to be dancing with her, but kind of was like, oh, I don't know if I should. And then the... Frank and Omar say like, oh, sure, whatever, go for it. And she dances with her back to him most of the time. Yeah. She has to turn her head to talk to him. For me, this, uh, the scene where they're dancing together, I felt like the audio levels were like a little bit off. Like the music seemed just a touch too quiet compared to their conversation, which made it seem like a really awkward scene. And their dancing was kind of awkward. Like the choreography or just, that's not even choreographed, but like, yeah, it just, it just seemed very awkward to me. Very strange. Uh, the ADR is kind of weird in this movie. I think there are bits where you can tell where it is ADR. It goes lower and mm -hmm. it's the audio mix, I guess. I yeah. Don't know. yeah. 
Tony's very forward with her, and she's very blunt that she does not like him in any way. And then when she finally starts getting feisty with him, that's when Tony gets excited because then she he feels like she's you know finally showing some emotion. Right. And then after the club, uh, Tony and Manny are driving home, and he thinks Frank is soft. Yeah. And so he's at this point he's already starting to you know I the a new prize. Yeah. He, yeah. he's, he's starting to think about climbing the ladder. Yeah. And Manny's like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? This is the boss's wife. And Tony Montana being Tony Montana is, fuck that guy. And then we cut to three months later. And we're at a beach bar. <laughs> this I remember this scene because uh, what Manny's doing or what he says to do to pick up the ladies when he flicks his tongue. And I, I always remember uh, when he goes to do that and then... Scar- or. And Tony Montana sits on the chair and talks to the kid. To the kid. Hey, kid, watch what? this. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Was there a point to this scene, the whole beach scene? No, I can't. Uh, well, maybe, because it comes, uh, one of the most famous lines comes from this as well. Uh, first, you get the power, then you get the money, and then you get the woman. And yes. That, and that is. That is his climb. Yeah. And that is a, a huge trope uh, for gangsters, mm-hmm. I guess, if lack of a better term. Our next scene is Frank sends Tony and Manny to pick up Elvira, and they show up in 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 uh, Manny's car with the tiger print seats. And like, she's just like, "Fucking, are you kidding me?" Because you know she's stuck up. So that's Manny's car that they pull up in. Is it a different car than like different um, make and model than when they go meet with the Colombians? Yeah. Yes. So like the so like the whole interior, like all the seats are redone up, and like that's different coat of paint. It's like a, it's a different car. Yeah, because oh, it's a different. Yeah, when they meet okay. the Colombians, the car is like a brick red or yeah. dark. Red. It's kind of a beater. Yeah. Right. And, and this then is, this one's a Cadillac, this and it's yellow. It is yellow, and uh, the leopard interior or the tiger striping interior is yeah. totally something that Manny would get. Yeah. Absolutely. You know that totally fits his character. Yeah, and <laughs> she says it looks like somebody's nightmare. Right. Then he goes to impress her by getting the Porsche. And I love how he's talk, walking around. He's already planning, like, you know, we'll get bulletproof grass. We'll do this. And I love the comment from the guy selling it. Uh, it does not come with the uh, the lo- like rocket launchers or whatever on the side. Right. And then uh, Elvira says, don't forget the fog lights. But at the end of the bit, as she's getting ready to leave and he's going to go with her, he looks at Manny and he says, pay the man. Like, just just pay him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he kisses. He forces his, himself on Elvira, and he kisses her. Kind of a dick move. Yeah, but this guy's a dick. He's a sleaze ball. He really yeah. is. I yeah. mean, if anybody's rooting for Scarface, kind of have to look at yourself in the mirror. The hat thing of him putting on her hat and making her laugh was improvised. Yeah, so her laugh at that moment when she sees him is completely genuine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it really it really lightens the mood. Mm-hmm. So it was really, that's, that was a really good call by him. And it was also a chance to see that her, you know, she's starting to come around a little bit to him. Yep. Mm-hmm. When she mentioned the fog lights in my head, for some reason, I thought like, is this foreshadowing? Like, is this going to come up again later? Like if they actually get that on the car and like, there's some need for it. But do they? No. Okay. So. There you it. go. Well, no, but I'm saying like, that was just my thought when I first watched it. I was like, this you, is an odd bit of foreshadowing. You've gotten into his fucking thought. head. Good job. Good job. That's my job. And after this bit, Tony goes to visit his mom and his sister. What did you guys think of this whole scene? I was surprised the first time I saw it to know that his family had a, 
has already been living in the States. Yeah, I was surprised too. Yeah, come to think about it, I was surprised about that as well. I did think it was interesting that he had not even let them know he was in the States until he had made something of himself. So right away you get the impression that he's been on the outs with his family, and now he wants to come in as, you know, showing he's made something of himself to try to impress his mother. Yeah, and he even tells her, you know, that's why I stayed away. I was out trying to get this thing going or whatever it is. And she knows she's not dumb. You're a fucking drug dealer. You're the bad guy. So don't come around here. I don't want you to corrupting your sister. I remember thinking even way back when, when I saw it, is it me or does Tony and Gina have a weird relationship? I thought there's just a really weird vibe, which comes out later on when she starts kind of flirting with him. Uh, there's something weird between the two of them. Well, I don't blame her for that. I think it's she, him. It's definitely him, the, how overprotective he is of her. But I thought Manny put it best later on when he said that he, he doesn't see himself as a brother. He sees himself as her father. Yeah, but even then, I don't know. I just, I chalk it up to that that is the only, only love that Tony has in his life. And because he is so desperately lonely and alone that he grabs it very very tightly and he doesn't want to share it with anybody i think it's also a good point you make professor i think it's also the only person that really loves him you know besides loving her she loves him for knowing that he is this bad guy i think manny loves him too i think think, i I think manny would have had his back until the end i think so too yeah which makes that even more devastating but whatever. So he tries to give Mama $1,000. She's not having it. She kicks him out. Uh, Gina runs out. Naturally, he's going to give her the money. We'll stay in touch, blah, blah, blah. And, I'm or- I, and I can already tell he's going to ruin her life too. So Yeah, that's what the Mama was afraid of. If you're around her, she'll become just like you. Yeah, and, and she did say, you know, when she throws the money back at him, who did you kill for this? Right. You know, she, she knows he's bad. He's the bad guy. They never really touch on what he did to go to jail in the first place. But from the this interact, because originally he says it was for political reasons or for whatever. From this react or interaction with Mama, we know it's for something really bad. And then Manny sees Gina pr- apparently for the first time. And Tony gets into the car. She's beautiful. And hey! the, the way he erupts. Oh, my gosh. So fucking over the top. I mean, almost borderline psychotic. Yeah. And the music shifts, and he shifts, and Manny's looking at him like, what the fuck did I just say? Mm -hmm. Fucking crazy. I kept trying to think of why he was really against that. Besides being the overprotective brother, I thought it's either that Manny is kind of seen as a womanizer, especially with that tongue sequence at the beach, and how he is just about... You know, constantly they show him throughout the movie slapping women's butts and really trying to hit on them and do all these things. Either he's a womanizer or it's the fact that he's into the lifestyle. I think it's both. I think that Tony thinks that Manny is a complete womanizer, and he is. It's not, it's not sugar-coated. He very much is. And it's about getting into the life as well. Uh, but I think also a lot of it is, is his overprotectiveness because he gets pissed. For me, I feel like the first few scenes we had with Manny, like the the vibe he put off and the role his character that character plays, I knew he was gonna die at some point in this movie, but it wasn't until you have this interaction with uh Tony. Um, yeah, with Tony where I was like, Okay, now I know how he's gonna die later in the movie. Like it's good this so, is so, gonna this conflict is gonna 
Brutal. Yeah, you knew this wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. You knew this wasn't I, I immediately popped my head. He's going to kill Tony, or he's going to kill Manny in bed with Gina. Pretty close. Pretty close. And so uh, now... We are in Bolivia. And Omar and Tony are visiting Sosa, the drug lord in Bolivia. What did you guys think of this whole bit? You know, I have to say that it was interesting listening to you know, a large scale drug deal. You know, I never hear or see any of this because it's not part of my lifestyle at all. And it's not necessarily captured very often. It's usually for smaller things, but they're talking 150 kilos. That's a lot of Coke. That is a lot of Coke. I like how Tony doesn't pull any punches. He just says, what are you fucking kidding me? Uh, why are you doing this? We can do this. And then you can see Omar just going, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. I I love how he was just like shit in his pants, basically. Yeah. Trying to get Tony to shut up. And Tony's like, no, fuck you. I'm going to make this deal. Yeah. And it, it, it's very reminiscent of when Omar goes to him in the beginning and says, I'll give you $500. And he's like, fuck that. I want more. Same thing with Sosa, you know? Yeah. He, he just blows, he just blows them off. And you know, how about we split? How about we split the risks and we just have it get to, uh, where, Panama, Panama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Omar keeps saying, I got to talk to the boss. I got to talk to the boss. Yeah. I don't know. It kind of made me think of different places I've worked at in the past. Like when I feel like there's like two extremes of like the workers, there's the person who wants to constantly check in and ask for permission from like the supervisor or the manager and the other person who's like, let's just get it done and have the task over with. Sure. That was the vibe I got from this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because Tony also neg- re- he also negotiates a different price for the kilos, right? Which he thinks is going to be better during all of this. Sosa's bodyguard or silent henchman, whatever, gets information about Omar, and so they come back and Sosa or Omar says, "I got to talk to Frank." Yeah, because they're op- openly squabbling in front of Sosa. Yeah, which I thought was funny. Yeah. And I love how Tony just keeps telling him to shut the fuck up. This was my, I think, of this movie, my oh fuck moment. This one was? Was basically when they pan over, because I knew something likely was about to happen to Omar. I got that impression of when they were saying, oh no, you can go away and you'll fly right back. I'm thinking, oh no, this guy's fucked. <laughs> I love how uh, Sosa goes, no, 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 not you, Tony. Why don't you hang back for a minute? But and when then- they pan to that helicopter and you could see that Omar had this shit beaten out of him. Uh, and then they were going to drop him out. Plane. I thought they were just going to drop him. I didn't realize he was going to be hung out. Plane. So that was my oh fuck moment. What's weird is when they have the uh, silent henchman uh, on the phone, I thought for some, like, or you got, or John, you were saying you had the oh fuck moment or like the vibes pre oh fuck moment. Um, but for me, I was, I had those feelings, but I thought maybe this is just like a red herring. I don't know why. Just like I had a split second of doubt where I'm like, I feel like they might be building this up to be anticlimactic for like uh, a different payoff later, like where they would get Omar a different way or try and get Omar and Tony a different way. Sure, sure. I thought that uh, Sosa was listening in via a mic at the table and he wanted to hear which way the wind was blowing and he wanted the deal made. And so this is how he decided I'm going to make the deal go. Omar gets killed and now it's kind of all on Tony. And he's making this deal with Sosa without Frank knowing. And so now he's got to go back and present this deal to Frank. One little thing right at the end that I caught again, talking foreshadowing, 
is when Sosa says to him, don't fucking double cross me. Don't fuck me. But he's so suave about it when he's talking to him. You know, I think you and me, we can work this out. We can do business together a long time. Just remember, I only tell you one time. Don't fuck me, Tony. Don't you ever try to fuck me. I liked how... And Marsalis Wallace doesn't like to be fucked up by anybody but Mrs. Mrs. Wallace. I do like how Tony's reaction to Omar getting killed was, I didn't like the fucking guy. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Seeing that Frank is infuriated by Omar's death... And knowing the size of the deal with Sosa, Tony sets up his own cocaine operation. Mal Bernstein, a corrupted detective on Frank's payroll, accosts Tony at a nightclub, attempting to extort him for police protection. Tony spots Gina fraternizing with a man and confronts them both when he sees him grope her. Hitmen then attempt to kill Tony, who escapes with a bullet wound. He confronts Frank and Bernstein, certain that they are behind the attack. Frank confesses his involvement at gunpoint and begs for his life, but Tony has Manny shoot him before killing Bernstein. Tony marries Elvira, becoming the distributor of Sosa's product, using profits to build a multi-million dollar empire and a large, heavily guarded estate. So Frank is unhinged. He is pissed that Tony made this $18 million deal. And I think that what Frank was so pissed about was he didn't... He probably didn't want to spend that kind of money. Or he didn't have it. That's what I mean. Yeah. Well, well that's kind of, he, he hints at that, but he also kind of tries to remind um, Tony that the way to stay in the business is to go unnoticed. And to make a deal that big, somebody's going to notice it. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's Tony's ego. So Frank and Tony kind of have a falling out. And this is where uh, Tony doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, he even starts to kind of admit that he's after Elvira. A little bit, Elvira. yeah. Because he goes to her and says he wants to marry her. And, you know, leave Frank, come with me, Frank's old news, blah, blah, blah. And then they go to the club, and this is where we meet Bernstein, the cop. What did you guys think of this whole bit? I actually kind of appreciated the way that we got to see how these kind of things start. Like, you know, police protection and all that, and what I can do for you and what you'll do for me and blah, blah, blah. It was when the guy's ego started to get out of check, you knew Tony was going to say, fuck that. And that this guy's got to go because he started treating Tony like he was nothing. Well, he, And you don't disrespect Tony. Well, you do if you're a cop. Yeah. I mean, what are you, you going to do in a public nightclub? I love the fact that he was drinking milk. Mm-hmm. Did you guys notice that? Yeah. Well, he was on duty. No, I didn't. You didn't know uh, two weeks in a row. Second movie was someone drinking milk. Mm -hmm. When we're at the club before the assassination, of course he sees Gina and right again, you know, Gina's with somebody and we get that weird music and that weird look from Tony. And it just, you could see he's gone into his kind of psycho mode again. It reminded me of Pulp Fiction. When you get the, I was thinking the same thing. That's kill bill. Okay. (laughs) anyway yeah tony follows him to the bathroom and uh clearly this guy wanted to get it on and tony catches him and gina's pissed and the guy's pissed 
And I mean, it's just kind of a debacle. Did right? the guy get killed? Do you think he got taken outside and a couple bullets in him? I don't, no, I don't, I don't think, think so. Because so. I think they would have showed us. Like uh-huh. at worst, probably like roughed up or something. Yeah. If that. Yeah. Because, I, but Tony was so focused on Gina at that moment that the guy probably just left. I do think Tony had a point when she said, he treats me nice. Or says that to Manny, I think, later. Treat, treats me nice. And he's like, he took you into a bathroom to make out with you. How well does he treat you? <laughs> How nice is he treating you? Yeah. yeah but he tells funny. her she can never come back to the club. And she says, you know, I can see anybody I want, go anywhere I want, and fuck anybody I want. Then he hauls off and slaps her. Yeah. Hits her hard. He's a fucking dick. Yeah. He is not a hero of this movie by any stretch of the imagination. And so he goes back to the table. Manny takes her home. And then now we're cutting between assassination attempt and Gina and Manny Manny getting to know each other. Well, one of the things I'm noticing, too, at this point in the movie is either the effect the lifestyle is having on him or the effect that all the drugs he's doing is having on him. Probably a little bit of both. But he's sitting there kind of with his mouth open. He's slumped down. He's starting to kind of sink. You notice that? Yeah. And yeah, he's, he's just, all fucked he's up. just kind of looking around the room and taking it all in. But still at the same time, it's almost like he's just losing himself at this point. Yeah. Plus, I think he was super fucking high at that moment. Yeah. Either he was high or he was drunk or both. Probably both. Yep. Mm-hmm. Probably both. But we get a reveal of two guys that are eyeing him, and they are hiding something underneath napkins. This is uh, one of the bits that had to be cut for the X rating. Is uh, I guess there was prolonged shots of that clown thing getting shot. Oh, the oh. dude with the face. Yeah. What was that clown thing? It was just a clown, I guess. I don't know. The attempted assassination. It doesn't work. Tony gets hit. Magically hits the fucking lights. Hits the truss, whatever, and yeah. then it kills him. And he gets away in his Porsche. He was pretty smart again, kind of showing his intelligence. Uh, instead of shooting at them directly, shot at their legs. Yeah, because you know, he, yeah, he couldn't get up to shoot them there, so he took the... Took their legs sp- out, which would really in, you know impact them. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely not fucking dumb. What does he tell Elvira? I might not be a college kind of guy, but I know the street. And this is that's one of those moments. Mm-hmm. I agree. If I'm being honest, this part of the film kind of dragged for me. Like, I would say the scene, uh, including Gina up through the assassination attempt, just because I didn't feel a lot of tension in the scene. Like, I, to me, I felt like the two guys there to assassinate him, like, obviously they were there to go after him. And to me, it felt pretty obvious, like, who had paid them to do it or, like, who was, who put them up to it. So I, I guess for me, I just wasn't a huge fan of it, but it just made the, the movies already very long. And for me, I think they could have found a way to shorten this maybe or make it a little bit more succinct. Hey, I, you're not wrong, but I want to back up to if we're being honest. Are you saying you're not normally honest with us? Because that's what you're saying. Shit, I, <laughs> you guys have me in a corner here. Well, welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right, Nolan. Uh, there are a lot of bits in this movie that drag. And unfortunately for me, a lot of it has to do with Gina. And the bits that she's in, I think they drag on just a little bit. Kind of like but that. You, but you need them for that moment at the end. Well, speaking of Gina, the car ride home with Manny, what did you think of that whole discussion? And kind I, of the, you know, you started to see more chemistry between them. I thought it was cute. I was actually kind of rooting for those two because in a movie of such unlikable characters, because there's nobody likable in this movie. With the exception of maybe Gina, but she falls down the wrong path. What about Mama? Yeah, Tony's mom. But she's in it for two seconds. Come on. 
Come on. That's like saying, what about the traffic cop standing on the corner? Um, no, but I thought this was a, a cute scene. What about you? I thought it was okay. It, you know, it's something that we needed to have in order to have the payoff that we have at the end. Yeah. Right. That Tony's fall is so pre- precipitous because, you know, he had everything and then he loses everything. Right. In, in one big avalanche. Yep. And so now he gets, back, he gets back with a Chi Chi and he, he, and that other guy and he wants them to call Frank at three o'clock sharp three o'clock sharp I, I kept wondering where that was going and when we finally get the scene it was actually a pretty brilliant thing to do he's a smart guy yeah that, not likable but smart yeah because that that was savvy yeah so he goes in to frank and frank and the copper there oh my and, gosh what happened to you you look awful yeah and he's well you should see the other guys and frank's coming up with some bullshit and and tony's kind of playing along for yeah. a moment, because we'll, he, we'll get he's him. We'll get him for you. We'll get him. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, it was the Diaz brothers, right? Uh, but the phone rings, and it goes on and on and on. And I like how uh, Frank goes, "Oh, it's probably Elvira just wondering where I'm at." And Tony's all, "Well, I'll answer it for you." You know, forcing Frank to mm-hmm. answer the phone. And so we know what's being said. Hey, I fucked up. We missed him. And then it's Frank's reaction, which is going to tell Tony tells what he needs to know. What did you guys think of this whole bit? It was good. The tension builds wonderfully in this scene because, you know, what's with the phone call? Now it's 3 o'clock. Okay, we'll see what happens. Oh, what's Tony going to do now? Yeah. I didn't know how to react to what happens after this, which is, you know, I know that Tony kept saying in different spots in this movie that Frank was soft and Frank was weak. But I didn't expect him just to fold like a house of cards, just to basically be begging for his life. It was a gorgeous camera shot when we are there and we see Tony come in and the camera slowly backs up and we watch Tony come in and sit down and the camera starts tracking around Tony. We get around to the side. Just a beautiful tracking shot. I noticed that a lot throughout this film. That There was a lot of them. There's a lot of camera movements that De Palma pulls off and they look real nice. Yes, they do. Real nice. I guess it's a little bit later in the scene, but uh, I just thought the, or I guess two things. I'm going to start with the first one. That's um, usually how it goes. One, yeah. two. No, maybe you should do the second thing. Okay, I'll do the second thing. Um, I vote the first. <laughs> uh, well, for fuck's sake, okay, do you yeah, go yeah, already? What okay. the fuck are we doing? Jeez, the second thing. I thought it was very humorous, the interaction with, I believe he's a lawyer, like the guy who they leave alive, like they shoot the cop and then- uh, Ernie? Frank is Ernie. Yeah, he, he's Frank's henchman. He's his oh, he's bodyguard. Just a he's not. Oh, I fucking, okay. I love that. Bit. You want a job? Yeah, and just you got a job. Like. <laughs> yeah, and I gotta say, watching that go. Hey, what about Ernie? And then that that we hold on Tony, and we're like, oh man, what's gonna happen? I am sure that everybody in the audience, you're seeing that for the first time. Nobody is breathing. Nobody is blinking, and everybody is waiting to hear what he's gonna say. And the music's swelling. It's going, 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 going. Then it cuts out and he goes, you want a job? So it was nice, nice uh, timing there. One thing I thought was kind of just, I don't know if I appreciate or if I, I thought was worked well in this movie, was while all this is going on with Frank, notice how cocky and confident that cop was just sitting there. And he's like, I'm going to walk out of here. No problem. Either way. He was smug. Yeah, so smug. So it was kind of nice to see him get his. Really? Yeah, I didn't mind that so much because the guy was an asshole to start with. Oh I feel gosh. like he 
He took the f- the first bullet kind of like a champ. Yeah, he's he didn't like, what react the fuck? Much to that. He was like, you can't shoot a cop or and something he, it, like that. And he's like, I can fix this. Hang on, I can fix this. But before that, I think my favorite part of this whole scene is Frank goes, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. And uh, Tony goes. on his hands and knees. And oh, yeah. Tony goes, I'm not going to kill you. And he turns to Manny Manolo, shoot this piece of shit. <laughs> so good. There's kind of a contrast with this scene and later in the movie because he has Manny kill Frank for him, but then later in the film he's insulting. I believe I think it's Sosa. I believe he's insulting when he's saying like you won't get your hands dirty. Like you have to do this when they're following the car with the explosives, right? And I just think it's interesting that like Tony doesn't do his killing for himself in this scene, and then is later criticizing um, the other guy. Well, it's yeah, but I mean, but say. but Tony has killed his share. I mean, he kills the cop right then. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, so what's the yeah. fucking difference? I guess, yeah. I think he was just doing it to show Frank at that last moment that he has the power now. Yeah. I, think, I totally took it as a po- fucking power move and a total gangster move. I also saw it not only just a power move, but basically saying that, Frank, you are now below me. You're not even worth me killing you, so I'm going to have Manny do it. Yeah, yeah. And Frank was right. I... I I mean, we talked about Frank begging for his life, but he was willing to sell off everything. Like he was like, "You want uh, Elvira and stuff?" And just take her, take her, ten million dollars. Yeah, yeah. And so after uh, M- Manny says, "Hey, Tony, thanks," and he takes that swig, you see the clock on the uh, on the shelf, three oh three, three minutes, three minutes. What a huge change! Yes, yes, I noticed that too. The the three minute mark. And then we cut to Tony going to Elvira's and waking her up and telling her the news. And he says, go get your stuff. And then he goes outside and sees the blimp. And uh, this is where the VHS broke. So this is half the movie. We're halfway there. Uh, And then we get a montage of Tony taking over. Tony's empire building. Yes. And to that fantastic song. What did you guys think of this whole bit of his rising to power? Well, it's about time, right? An hour and a half into the movie. <laughs> yeah, because more or less, you know, that's what this movie generally is about. You know, the rise and fall of a, you know, of pursuing the American dream of having everything and then losing everything. I guess that ended up becoming part of the reason why the uh, film critics board uh, ended up going along with the movie because De Palma went out and he got a group of officers that were depicting this movie as an anti-drug movie sure in our montage don't we also get this whole wedding scene yeah Yeah. tony and elvira get married he gets his tiger did you see that gina was a bridesmaid or was yeah the maid of honor yeah and then uh her and manny share a look you see that yeah well love is in the air it's a wedding and tony finally got his tiger tony got the tiger tony the tiger thank you nolan i was waiting for somebody In 1983, a money laundering sting operation by federal agents results in Tony being charged with tax evasion and facing potential prison time. Sosa offers to use his government connections to keep Tony out of prison, but only if Tony helps kill an activist intending to expose Sosa's drug operations. During dinner at an upscale restaurant, Tony accuses Manny of causing his arrest and Elvira of being an infertile junkie, prompting Elvira to leave him. Tony and Sosa's henchman, Shadow, travel to New York City to assassinate the activist. Shadow puts a radio-controlled bomb under his car, 
But Tony tries to cancel the hit upon seeing the activist is accompanied by his wife and children. When Shadow refuses, Tony kills him before he can detonate the bomb. Tony then returns to Miami and an enraged Sosa threatens him with retribution for allowing the activist to deliver the expose. So the next scene we get is all this money and all the counting. Making No, it's he's talking to the banker. He wants to launder his money. He's making $10, $15 million a month. Oh, my gosh, that's right. The van with all the uh, bags and bags of money. Yeah. So the banker has to go to Tony's house, the office, and say, I got to raise the rates, this, that, and the other. And Tony's like, fuck you, man. And then Manny has this connection uh, for some money laundering, and this is how uh tony ultimately gets busted and we also get to see um this is probably one of the first times that we see uh tony turn on manny because he's turning so paranoid and and manny's like you need to lighten up you need to get out of the house and do something type of thing you know we have the the bank of nine security cameras you know and and so it's it's really starting to show that that uh tony is under a lot of pressure, and it doesn't help that he's doing a lot of coke. <laughs> a lot of coke is an understatement. During this money laundering scene where they're counting up all the money with this one guy, one of my indications that something wasn't right here was when the guy gives the money total and Tony says, no, 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 it's a lot more. It was like 1500 more than that, what you've come up with. And the guy was like, okay, we'll just call it even. I'll give you the 1500 I'm like, no, no criminal is going to freaking do that. They're going to say, count it again. Agreed. Uh, what set it off for me, they looked like fucking cops. Did they not? Yeah. They I were. don't know. I just chalked it up to they were Manny's friends. What did you think of that huge bathtub? I mean, it looks ridiculous. But It, it looks so gaudy. But tell me you wouldn't sit in it. No. I like this bit because he's arguing with both Elvira and Manny, and they're both basically calling him an asshole, and my favorite bit in this is when he's talking about the Pelicans. Fly, Pelican, fly. Manny says, you know what? You should listen to your wife. You are an asshole. And he starts walking out, and he's all, hey, Manny, come here. Come here, give me a kiss. <laughs> it's just, I, it makes me laugh every single time. And, and you know, it, it's telling. He says, you know, I don't need nobody. And so here he is. He's, you know, he's completely isolated himself, and he, he has only anger and cocaine to pass his days. <laughs> Cocaine's a hell of a drug. I would definitely lay in that bathtub. It'd be pretty nice. I, I will say, though, I would have gotten a much bigger... If I'm going to have a TV angled towards a bathtub, I'm going to get a, like, a much bigger one. That was a tiny little thing. And Well, it was 1983. That yeah. was the biggest one they had in 1983. Okay, but God, you are okay. so ungrateful. But I will say, if you're living in an estate full of like alcoholics or substance users, why are you putting the bar next to the TV that's angled towards your bathtub that assumingly a lot of people are going to be getting up and walking in front of? Well, because I have someone to bring me the drinks. I don't fucking know, but Nolan. Compl- I didn't write the fucking script. I know, but he complains. Uh, Elvira walks over to make herself a drink, and he's like, get the hell out of the way of the TV. And it's like, well, you put the bar there in the first place. Well, well that's not, not... You're not wrong. One of my thoughts is if you want to have a good discussion with me, how about after you're out of the bathtub? Why? Because I don't want to have a discussion whether you're in the bathtub. Why? Does the naked form bother you? Yours would. That's not what you said the other night. Na- you know what? We're not going to talk. We're not going to get into that right now, bud. Okay? How long do you think it takes to fill that bathtub? Hour? 
<laughs> hour five, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> and is the water still warm when you're done? Totally. <laughs> During the money laundering scene, great, great tracking shot that we have where the camera starts out, you know, with their, it's two hours later, right? Yeah. They've been at it for two hours. And, uh, and so, you know, having them go around and we come around to the side and, you know, the, the, it's off, you know, and they talk about the discrepancy and that the camera goes up. And I totally looked at that clock and go, that's a, oh my God, that's a camera. There's a, totally a camera oh. in there. Oh yeah. De Palma likes the camera shot where you start on one thing and then you move the camera and establish something else. And then you go right back to that one thing that you just started on. We do that with the hotel at the beginning with the chainsaw. We do it in this bit. I mean, it's all over this fucking movie. Mm-hmm. The, the camera in the clock being so obvious, I took that as this is also again showing Tony's downfall that he's just getting sloppy. That the old Tony from the beginning of the movie would have easily noticed that this was a setup. I don't know. I don't know about that. For me, I thought originally that this, where they were counting the money was on Tony's estate or something like that. And it was just showing his like paranoia that he was hiding cameras like in on like his business dealings or something like that. Sure. That that originally that was my thought. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So he gets busted and uh, next we see Tony with his lawyer. And the lawyer saying, look, babe, uh, you're going to have to do some fucking jail time. Five years, out in three. Yeah, and Tony's like, fuck that. Right? I ain't never going back to a cage. You're not going back in. Yeah, yeah. And I love how Manny just puts it. He's like, no, no, this is different than Cuba. It's like a freaking go to a hotel <laughs> yeah, he's trying here. to tuck him into it. <laughs> he's trying to say, oh, it's okay, dude. You go to jail. It's fine. It's fine. It's nothing here. Yeah. Next scene we have is Tony is back down in Bolivia. And he's meeting some influential people in Sosa's empire. Because he's got some problems. And hopefully Sosa can help. And it turns out that there's this activist guy making problems for Sosa and his party. Naming names of people in the room. And, you know, exposing them for being uh, high-profile drug dealers. Mm-hmm. And Sosa's like, dude, we need, can't, to, we need to fix this problem. We can't have this fucking problem. So I got my buddy Tony here who has some legal issues and he tells Tony, we will guarantee you will not do any jail time. You will pay some pretty big fees. Yes, taxes. And did you see, did you notice Tony's reaction? He was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Like it was like, it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you need to kill this guy. So very reminiscent kind of, of the beginning. Well, not necessarily kill, but Alberto, he's in the disposal business. The shadow. Right, he needs to be his escort. I stand corrected. Because he doesn't speak any English. Right. So then we cut to that dinner scene. Uh, it's Manny, Tony, and Elvira. Tony looks like he's stoned or drunk or both. He's hammered because he won't let up on Manny, and he definitely will not let up on Elvira. Pretty much calls her a junky... Infertile uh, horror. Infertile something. Uh, something. He tells Manny that he needs to run the business for a week while he's in New York. Right. And Manny, he doesn't want to do it. Uh Uh-uh. And this is where we get the speech where he says he's the bad man. Bad guy. Well, also, we have Elvira. She she finally erupts, and she leaves him. And that's the last we see of Michelle Pfeiffer for this movie. Mm -hmm. So what did you think of Tony's big speech to the restaurant? I thought it was classic. I think that he's looking at all of these people who are looking at him, and he's saying what they're thinking. Mm Mm-hmm. And he doesn't give a fuck. He's unapologetic and 
for all of them to feel superior and good, then they have to look at somebody as the bad guy, as below them. Right. And he's like, that's what you guys have cast me. That's the my role, and I am the bad guy. Right, right. And a great tracking shot of Tony during his entire dialogue, following him as he gradually works his way out of the restaurant. Right. What did you think of this, Nolan? Uh, for me, I think this scene showed a lot more of the... Like, from prior scenes, we can tell that, like, the decline of Tony has started, but I think, like, the substance abuse side of it comes out more in this scene. Like, he's much more visibly uh, drunk or high or both uh, than in past scenes. I know we have the scene with the hitmen where he seems pretty out of it, but I think in this one, it's like he's not only out of it, but he's, like, pushing all of the people who were supposedly close to him further away. Sure. And then we cut to New York. And- New York City. He has to show the shadow around or escort him while they plant a bomb underneath this activist's car. What did you guys think of this whole assassination attempt bit? I was honestly surprised it just wasn't one of those you turn the key and the car explodes. Uh Why they had to follow them and do it at a specific place. Because they wanted to detonate it in front of the United Nations to make more of a statement. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, that's what he says. I missed that. Uh, but it turns out that the activist is not going to work alone this morning and has his wife and kids. What did you think of Tony not wanting to kill the wife and kids? Do you think that's a redeemable quality? I think they were supposed just trying to show that there's even a line that Tony won't cross. Yeah, I, I thought that it was, it was uh, important to have that for Tony. It shows that he's not quite there yet, being like the drug lords that we come to associate being running their cocaine empires. Yeah, and I think earlier in the film when he's interacting with the kids, the, that was kind of to establish that, like, regardless of all the horrible shit he's done, he's like a like a guy who uh, enjoys kids. I don't know how to phrase that. Yeah, and maybe, like, and maybe he sees it as, I'm not a complete monster yet. Mm-hmm. And he did mention to uh, Elvira, you know, when he's visiting her at the poolside, you know, you ever think about having kids? I want to have kids. Right. They abort the mission, or he aborts it by shooting Shadow in the face. And so you know now he is fucked. In the meantime, we do have Tony calling back home a couple of times to find out that Manny is completely off the radar for a couple of days. Nobody knows where he is. And then he also finds out that Mom doesn't know where Gina is either. Mom has been trying to get a hold of him. Right. At his mother's behest, Tony, who is high on cocaine, tracks down Gina and finds her with Manny. In a fit of rage, Tony shoots Manny dead. He learns that Gina had just married him. A distraught Tony returns to his estate with Gina and begins a massive cocaine binge in his office. Sosa's men begin to invade the grounds and kill Tony's guards as Gina enters the office with a gun. Accusing him of wanting her for himself, she shoots and wounds him but is killed by one of Sosa's men, whom Tony kills in return. Tony takes a rifle and grenade launcher to the invaders, killing many of them, but suffering multiple gunshot wounds. He taunts his attackers until an assassin climbs up the office and shoots him in the back. Tony's body falls off the balcony into a pool, resting near the base of the globe with the iconic motto, The World is Yours. Roll credits. Say goodbye to the bad guy. 
So we are getting into our third act, and this is kind of where uh, all of the shit hits the fan. Mama keeps calling Tony. Where's Gina? uh, Mama gives him the address. You knew this was coming. You saw it a mile away. We also have Tony uh, getting a phone call from Sosa. (laughs) I told you not to fuck me, Tony. What did you think of that? The opulence of that red room with the, you know, all that out there in the foyer. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It was so over the top. It was so drug dealery. Yeah. I mean, that's very flashy. Yeah. You know, another great tracking shot following him up the stairs. Oh yeah. And so Tony figures out where Gina is and they go to the house. Well, he figures out the address, but I don't think it really clicked with him right away that that was Manny's house. And I assume he's been to Manny's house, but he seemed really surprised when Manny answered the door. I don't think he's been to Manny's house. I don't don't think think he gives a fuck. No. He's too selfish. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I kind of think, too. I also thought it was kind of interesting. The way that Manny opened up the door, it was like he was very happy to see Tony. He was because that was his best friend, and he was excited to tell him that he just married his sister. Yeah, I think because they were excited about this surprise. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But. Tony wasn't. No, and you see it in his fucking eyes. It's a slow motion shot. He's looking, he sees Gina, and then he looks back at Manny, and you just go, oh, no. What did you guys think of this whole bit? That was tragic. I mean, this was the one guy that had been with him the whole way through, and you knew it was the one guy he could always trust. And so we see Gina. We see the reveal, and now Gina is absolutely distraught, and then... The, you know, the kick to the balls is she looks at him and she says, we got married yesterday and we couldn't wait to fucking tell you. Mm-hmm. So to me, this scene um, with Manny getting shot felt so fast, considering that other parts of the movie seemed to drag a bit for me. I was very surprised at how like the scene just seemed like it was over in a second and there wasn't a lot of time of like reflection or reflecting on everything that happened. I felt like, but maybe that's also... Maybe that's intentional because he's coked out and like going uh, and has the pressure of starting the like war with um, Sosa. So maybe it's intentional that this scene's kind of fast and not very reflective. But to me, it just seemed very like, man, he's been with us throughout the whole movie. And I feel like they didn't dwell on his death or give it as much gravity as I felt like it should have been given. Well, I think it's very deliberate. I think it's done to show that. Tony is now numb to everything, and we're just going to move right past this. Mm-hmm. Uh, because now we're back at the fucking estate, and Sosa's coming for him. Yeah, we, we start to see a couple of people infiltrating the uh, his place. Right, right. What do you think of this whole scene where Gina comes in to talk to Tony? And she's doing the whole thing of, I know you want me, and blah, blah, blah. And I was, Did that kind of seem like a really creepy scene? Oh, it was very awkward, uh, but... I guess I can understand her reaction, but... She almost made it sound like he wanted her sexually, which almost felt, kind of gave the vibe, like he thought about it for two seconds. Oh, I think, well, like I said earlier, I think there was a weird dynamic there. So that wouldn't surprise me, I guess. But I'm glad they didn't go there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love the fact that she can't fucking hit him with a gun and she's standing right there. Maybe subconsciously she didn't want to kill him. Well, they also, they mentioned that they like, gave her some pills and stuff like that. So she's traumatized and high or on something. And Right. And before he can disarm her or before anything can happen, a henchman jumps through the window and guns down Gina. Before Gina comes in, we have Tony sitting at his desk looking completely dejected with a mountain of cocaine 
on his desk. Yeah, and he just drops his nose into it. Oh, my gosh. Who doesn't do that? I mean, <laughs> come on. So he's getting ambushed, he's getting bum-rushed, and he's not saving his people. He keeps Chi-Chi out, locks him out. Uh, all the other ones die. Ernie, who's been with us through this whole bit, gets strangled. And, you know, Sosa's coming for him. And this presents probably the most iconic scene of this film with the most iconic line. He gets the M16 with the grenade launcher. Say hello to my little friend. Blows the door open. What struck me about this bit when I first watched it, and even last night, is after he does that and he's standing there shooting everybody, I love how many times he gets hit and he's still going. Well, it doesn't even like, I, it's obvious because he's just so coked up, but he doesn't even seem like he feels the bullets. Well, he probably doesn't because he's so fucking high. Because yeah, he says, your bullets don't harm me. Your bullets aren't even Yeah, well, he's me. talking shit at that point. But, you know, for the longest time, I thought the guy who shoots Tony in the back was Sosa, just with a really bad tan. Tony gets shot in the back, falls in the water. The movie ends how it naturally has to end. Tony Montana is not a good guy, and he is not going to get a happy ending. So... You know, I think the whole fucking movie, Scarface doesn't the whole movie just take place over three or four years. No, oh, I don't know. I think it's just kind of this whole rise and fall is just super quick. Yeah, possibly. Mm-hmm. All I remember thinking last night after watching it was, wow, what a fucking depressing movie. It was fucking depressing. All I remember is pausing it a little ways through and thinking, oh, my God, I've already sat here for two hours. <laughs> I still have another 50 minutes. I, know, yeah. I even stopped to look just to see how much longer it was in the movie. Yeah. What's funny is when I was watching this, uh, my mom walked into the room while I was out in the living room, TV's on watching it, and it's the scene where Frank gets killed. And my mom's like, oh, so the movie's almost over. And I was like, no, we're we're, we're just halfway through this thing. Yeah, you're not even at the first VHS yeah. tape. So, Welcome to a new segment we like to call Face the Wheel. The premise is simple. I will spin the wheel, and whatever category comes up, John and Don will apply it to the movie we are reviewing. Once they have presented their idea, it's up to you, the listeners. Let us know via social media or on our website which idea you like best. So here are the categories. Mashup, plot, rename, genre, reboot, fuck it, I liked it better when it was called, spin again, pick any, add any character from any movie. And here go reboot (laughs) speaking of reboots all right rebooting scarface so reboots like a sequel yeah uh not necessarily if you were going to remake the movie what changes would you make so if it was going to be contemporary maybe he's selling crack i don't know What's the difference? Because it's whack. <laughs> you want me to go first? Yeah, go ahead. If I was going to reboot this movie, I would make it, you know, present in today's current culture in that, you know, what's going on today. So it's not, you know, in the past, not in the 80s, not in the, the 20s, whatever. But I would get Quentin Tarantino to direct it. I would do it in his style of an up-and-coming drug lord. Because I don't know, have we ever gotten a Quentin Tarantino movie that dealt with drugs in a way, like drug lords and things like that? I can't think of one. Pulp Fiction. Was that more of a, was that drug lords? I know it was what do you kind think, of... Who do you think, Ving, what do you think Ving Rhames was? 
Wasn't he wanted the the soul in the box, basically, whatever was in the briefcase? We don't know what was in the briefcase. Is that, he ever outed as a drug lord? Oh yeah, okay. so it's very much implied. Okay, well anyway, I would have done it basically. Maybe Vin Rains, the rise and fall of that character. Interesting. I'm going to gender reverse everything. Uh, Tony Montana is now Antonia, and it's going to be her rise into the drug world, uh, and we'll play it from that perspective. I don't know if this is quite a reboot, so you guys can correct me on it. Oh, we will. Um, I think an interesting idea for a reboot would be, well, because the movie already shows you the rise and fall and Tony of, of Tony and Tony's greed and shows that angle of being in the like the drug world mm-hmm. or drug trade, I think it would be interesting to kind of show some of the or tie in more of like the the history of the of that time frame, like with uh a lot of Cuban people uh, immigrating to the U.S. and just showing um, their struggle, their side of things. And, like, I I think you could make a reboot of this film where um, maybe some of, like, the issues that drugs have, the drug trades caused in South America. Does that make sense? Yeah. And there you have it, listeners. Let us know via social media or on our website who you thought had the better use of category. And that concludes this week's Face the Wheel. All right, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to rate this flick. John, are you ready to rate this flick? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to rate this flick. I'm ready anytime. You guys ready to rate this flick? I want to rate this flick. How? Yeah. <laughs> All right, me too. Let's get this flick going. Hey, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. A one fuck movie is a movie where you watch it once and you're like, I'm never watching that again. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is a movie that you watch and after you get done with it, you turn to your buddy and say, oh, for shit's sake. What the hell? Why did you make me watch it? I want two hours and 50 minutes of my life back. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. Uh, who pulled this out of the helmet? Oh, you there, guy. But you ask the guest. Is he really a guest at this point anymore? Anybody? Anybody? Yes, the gimp, kind of the same thing. Is it? All right, Professor, you're up. Scarface. This is a movie that I've seen a couple of times, and in watching it again, I, I think that the uh, camera work is fantastic in this he spends brand palma spends so much time working with you know having beautiful camera shots and these camera shots i did not notice the last time i watched it because i wasn't that paying that close attention but since we started doing the pod that's something that i pay a lot more attention to these days and it's important to be able to articulate you know how and why i think a movie is good and that's one of the aspects that i appreciate about it Our character, Tony Montana, is an iconic character, and I think that this movie has a real following because of what Al Pacino has done for Tony Montana. And his character is despicable and sleazy and and awful as he is. He's still an interesting, intriguing character to watch because he has such cojones, and he is so brazen, and, and it is always really uh, fascinating to watch his precipitous rise and fall and how pretty much nobody gets out alive at the end of this movie. 
I thought that the supporting cast worked well too. I really enjoyed the character of Manny and Gina. And I thought that Frank, he was such a gaudy, you know, over the top, crass, obnoxious guy. <laughs> the way he would just yell everything. It was it was amusing having him being so obnoxious because every time, oh, there he goes again. It was amusing watching him how over the top he is. But I really appreciated how he ends up groveling for his life at the end. And to have him go out just like that it was kind of satisfying, actually. By the end of the movie, I got to say the last 20 minutes, by, by the time you get to the end of the movie, you're like, wow, because that is one heck of a roller coaster ride at the end of the movie. So much shit goes down. And, you know, I was thinking that this movie, it is a little bit like if Quentin Tarantino was around in 1970, in, in 1983, making, I, I could kind of start to see this because of all of the blood that, um, that we have in, in the killings and such, and where you just don't know how things are going to unfold. And I think that um, Brian De Palma has really done a, a good job at putting this movie together. And I really also had an interesting time thinking about this movie when I compared it to The Wolf of Wall Street. All despicable characters, and I didn't like that movie. But why is it that this movie was okay for me? Because this movie doesn't have any redeemable characters necessarily either. Well, maybe in Gina, but, you know, she unfortunately, you know, went down the wrong path. And I think the reason why it still works for me is because Tony Montana is a fictional character and all of these characters were fictional. And it was um, not necessarily the case at, in The Wolf of Wall Street because it's based on a real person and that real person didn't necessarily get their comeuppance. And so I think that this movie is more enjoyable for me, even though we have characters that nobody's good in it. In the end, I'm giving this movie four fucks. Four fucks from the professor. All right, guy, you're up. I just want to say you always sound so articulate, uh, Ken, when you're giving your 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 statement for the fucks. I'm always just like I'm always baffled by that. Like I don't think do you have any notes that you read off of, or you're no. so you're so eloquent. Get your <laughs> tongue out of his asshole, Gary. Um, Scarface. I'd never seen this film before. Uh, I'd known a lot of the more quotable moments just from general pop culture and hearing other people say them all the time. Uh, to me, this film was very tropey. I felt like there were a lot of things that um, drew probably drew inspiration from this movie, but since it's an older film, uh, it just appears tropey to me because I've seen what has come after it. Uh, but for me, that kind of took away from the film at certain bits. The plot and the narrative was very, sometimes, or most of the time, purposefully so. Uh, it was just very calculatable. You kind of knew where everything was going to come to a head, and I think it was very predictable in that sense. Just because the plot is predictable, that doesn't, that's not a major drawback to the film. I just, for me, it was just such a long film, and... And since I knew where it was going, it made it a less enjoyable watch. I think this film suffers from being so quite so long that it could have made a good miniseries or it could have been shortened in some areas. Um, but for me, I think Al Pacino does a great job with his role as Tony. He just creates this character that's just insane to watch. 
For me, I'm going to have to give Scarface three fucks. Three fucks from Nolan. You're up there, guy. Okay. Hold on. Let me get this pile of cocaine out of here. Here, I'll get it for you. (laughs) You missed the spot. Oh, wait. Hold on. Thank you. That's my gum. Before I go, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you've done all that coke. Oh, yeah. Do you want to guess what my rating is going to be? Yeah, hang on. Hang on. One more. (laughs) How many bumps was that? That was three, right? Okay, you're giving it three fucks. Three fucks. Okay. Al Pacino is a national treasure. Whatever movie you put him in, you know you're going to get an amazing portrayal from Pacino. Even in a not-so-great movie, you still are going to be entertained by Pacino. I've never seen this movie before, but I always wanted to because who doesn't know who Tony Montana is? Pacino created a top-level iconic character in Tony Montana. We've all heard the quotes, and who hasn't said at one time or another, say hello to my little friend? My biggest issue with this movie, kind of like you were talking, Nolan, is that it feels really long, while at the same time doesn't feel like it tells us the whole story. I know that the original cut was a lot longer, so it feels like to me that this movie would have been better cut up into a series of movies instead of one long movie. It's funny that you brought up the idea of being a miniseries. I could see this almost like, you know, a Godfather series that we got part one, part two, part three, something like that, and got to see the rise and fall of Tony Montana from maybe, you know, leaving Cuba all the way up to his final end. I also found myself putting this movie up against Goodfellas, which, in my opinion, was actually done better as a gangster movie. I found way more tension and character development in Goodfellas than Scarface. Of the two, if I wanted to recommend a movie to someone for kind of the drug lord gangster type movie, I would have to say Goodfellas is the one to go with. If I had to choose which one of those to watch again, I'd probably choose Goodfellas. So for those reasons, I'm giving Scarface three fucks. That's a bingo. Three fucks from the comic book guy. My turn. You go next. Thanks, buddy. I remember watching it way back when, and I remember thinking then that it was super long, and watching it again last night just kind of reiterated that for me. It was super long. But here's the thing that I did notice about Scarface last night. It is very well put together. It is a film that is well-crafted. The shots that De Palma uses are effective. The soundtrack, though dated and kind of wonky, I feel like works. Pacino was born to play this character. He created it. And he does such a good job at it that... For the character of Tony Montana, there is no redeeming qualities. Outside of Gina, like we said, maybe no one in this film is a good person at all. So we are watching the rise and fall of bad people, if you will. This movie, I feel, is incredibly depressing. And the end is inevitable. You see it coming from the beginning and just how he lives his lifestyle. And I guess I understand why it's such a big phenomenon and why people gravitate toward it. Uh, Tony's attitude toward everything and just his way of life. I can see how that's appealing to people. 
But what I don't see is how it ends, how that can be appealing to anybody. But hey, to each his own. I personally think that it is a beautifully crafted, depressing movie. And for that reason, I'm giving Scarface three solid fucks. With four fucks from the professor, three fucks from the comic book guy, and three fucks from myself, that gives Scarface an average of 3.3 fucks, which now puts it in the 20th spot, tied with The Greatest Showman, Big, and Mallrats. It is slightly better than Dr. Sleep, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and Chef, and slightly worse than it chapters one and two summer school barbarian and oceans 12 all right that is going to wrap it up for this episode of three guys in a flick if you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next please check out the website and speaking of which hey john where can they find us they can find us at three guys in a flick.com where we go ahead and post all of our show notes you can check out any of our podcasts as well as there's a web form on there that you can go ahead and respond to who won the wheel. You can submit a movie to go in the helmet that you would like us to review next. Give us some feedback, whatever. You can also find us at all of social media and anywhere that hosts podcasts. And if you are listening to uh, this current podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, any of them, go ahead and give us a comment, a like, anything. That would be terrific. We would love to build our subscriber base as well as hear what you think of the show. All right. I just want to thank Nolan for coming out again and hanging out with us. Do you have a good time again? Yeah, it's always a pleasure. All right. All right. You ready to go back in the box? I mean, I love it in there. It's my home now. There you go. I also want to thank Edwin for throwing this into the Bronco helmet and suggesting it. We had a lot of fun watching it and reviewing it. We hope that you have fun listening to it. I also want to thank anyone who listens and who has suggested a movie. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. For three guys in a flick, I'm Don. I'm John. I'm Ken. And I'm Nolan. The world is yours. I know, but I was going to do balls last so I could cut off because he said cut it off at the balls. So I was just going to stop the quote there. I was being an asshole, Professor. He's like, yeah, so how is that any different than any day that ends in Y? Coming to you from Tony Montana's bubble, bubble filled bubble bath. Bubble filled bathtub. Oh, what'd I say? Bubble filled bubble bath. What's the fucking difference? Bathtub. Maybe, hold on. Is that the one where he whips out the credit card with the cheese? No, dude, that's Batman and Robin. (laughs) You've seen the George Clooney version before. You've seen the Michael Keaton version? Apparently. This fucking guy. He'll fix it in post. Thanks, Nolan. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, if I was a hitman, I would have just blown all of them up. Yeah. Why, Why make the wife and kids suffer without the dad? Right? They can all just go together. There you go. Yeah. Thanks, guys. You're going to spin it? Ooh, me? Yeah. Um, he said he's supposed to spin it. So let him. I, I said I'm supposed That's what you said? I will spin the wheel. Fine. Who wrote that shit? Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Can we get Oliver Stone to fucking get a rewrite, maybe? I don't know.
Go ahead, buddy. Mm-hmm. Why is that guy wearing sunglasses at night? So he can... Oh, fuck, I don't know the lyrics. <laughs> I wear my right. <laughs> I feel like for the name this week, it's we're all going to be on the same page. I, you know, I keep saying Scarface in my head and I can't come up with anything. You can't. It's so obvious. Is it? Well, hang on. Sex face? No. Squirt face? Come on, Ken. You got it. Spunk face? No, I got nothing. You guys are missing the obvious one. Okay, Captain Obvious, please enlighten us. Scar facial. Oh. Oh. All right. Yeah. All right. Spunk facial was good, too. (laughs) Spunk. All right, may all of your uh, days and nights be filled with happiness. All right, fuck off, good night.